So I've got a very short review that I want to do from a topic that came up last week. And uh, last week we're, we're, uh, we were looking at a fresh kind of look at the gospel through, uh, and the, the passage of scripture we were looking at was the first part of John. And a couple of questions came up. One of them was, uh, I made the assertion, and uh, yeah, I made the assertion that um, the concept surrounding our gospel and evangelism where we accept the Lord, I felt like it was kind of a substitute for actually believing in the Lord and actually receiving the Lord. And uh, when, I, when I said that, uh, and I kind of disparaged the concept of accepting, uh, there were some questions, good ones, that came up. Ronnie had one, Jen had one, we talked about a little bit. And I've been, been thinking and working about it this week. Um, and I, I have to say that there's more in Scripture about accepting than I thought. And so my intent after last week was I was going to tackle the, the, the relationship between accepting, receiving, believing. And um, I, I wish I had uh, the technology to throw my computer screen up on there. Anyway, I, I'm not prepared to do that tonight. And the reason is because between the words of, of uh, um, accepting and receiving, there are probably about 30 variants of Greek words. And uh, for those of you that have been here through our last few weeks of, of looking at innocence, it was such a powerful thing, revelation to me that there are nine words uh, for innocence that all begin with an A in Greek, or they're all negations. And it just showed me that the Holy Spirit put a lot of detail into the inspiration of those words to help us understand what was going to be required to recover our innocence. And then there was one word, uh, so, which is righteousness, that's the affirmative, positive word about innocence, and that's what we're, that's, that's what we're going to, uh, what's, what's being recovered. The other stuff's being overcome. So I was kind of prepped, and when I saw this massive amount of these words with all the different prefixes, I realized that, that what the Lord, uh, is saying when he talks about receiving the truth or receiving Jesus and about accepting the gospel as it was preached, because that is in there, and about the whole idea of belief, that it just needed some more attention. So the second thing that came out of last week is what I'm going to try to tackle tonight. And that was, uh, because I challenged the concept of accepting the Lord as not being the strongest position uh, to take that was biblical. And like I say, I may still hold to that, but I've got to put some more study in on that. Uh, one of the things that I was, I was asked and challenged with is, well, th- then you don't not think our will has a part in it. And it's because of this. So uh, tonight I'm going to talk about the gift of our will and God's redemptive purposes. And so this was the passage out of the prologue to John that we went through and pulled the elements of the kingdom out of it. And if I'd known there was going to be as many of you here, I would have had a little bit longer review. But just track with me here. So here it is, uh, John chapter 1, verse 9. There was a true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. So one of the points we made last week is that is one of the fundamental statements of the gospel. That the coming of Jesus wasn't just Him coming in an act of, of forgiveness or an act of, of, of redemptive work around our sins, it was light, light coming in. And you know that 
that light is one of the four things, the four nouns that follow the phrase God is in the New Testament. And um, I, I just loved coming to understand that because the things that God is are always bearing their influence on everything he does. And one of those things is light. Where that is said is in John chapter 4, where Jesus is talking to the woman in the well, and he says God is light. Uh, The other three, just so you know, are in Hebrews chapter 12, God is fire. And there's a modifier in there, uh, modifying fire, consuming fire. So God is light, and God is consuming fire. And then in the first chapter of 1 John, God is, uh, I don't know, God is spirit. I'm sorry, God is spirit, uh, the woman at the well. Hebrews 12, God is fire. John 1, 1 John 1, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And in John 4, two times, it says God is love. So if you think about sort of the, the whole circle of, of who the essence of God is, he's love, love, yeah. Uh, God is love, God is light, God is spirit, and God is fire. And when you combine those things, and you understand that Jesus said, this is judgment, that lights come in the world, and uh, that uh, people that are led by the Spirit uh, are sons of God, and that no one knows the heart of a man except the spirit of a man, God is well-equipped to lead us into righteousness, well-equipped to lead us into being His Son. So anyhow, this is a big deal, that there was a true light coming into the world and lightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him. That's the relationship that Jesus brought into the gospel. He didn't come from outside. We were made by him. Remember earlier in the prologue, it says that uh, uh, everything that was made was made by him and nothing was made that wasn't made with him. He is that. So he brought his sovereign relationship. He brought his creator relationship. He brought his authoritative relationship and he brought us into that relationship in the world. So he came, the world's made through him, and the world didn't know him. He came to his own. We didn't become his own when we responded. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And that is actually one of the tremendous fruits of the incarnation, and the fruits of the gospel is for us to be the children of God. And that that means that we are in a position then to relate to God as our Father in ways that I spent a lot of my Christian life not knowing how to do. Because I th- primarily saw him as God sitting on a, 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 as a monarch, sitting on a throne, surrounded in unapproachable glory. And I'm not saying he's not that, but he is fundamentally our Father. And we are fundamentally his children. And then we got down to this line, uh, even those that believe on his name, uh, he, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And I emphasized that because I said that, I thought, and I I still think it, that we emphasize the will of man a little too much in our gospel. In other words, I asked the question last week, and Jason was sitting, I think, in the same chair, and I said, so in, in the normal presentation of the gospel that most of us have grown up with, what role does the will of man play? And I think you said... Almost all of it, the pivotal role. In other words, that's what we're trying to do. We're sharing the story of Jesus so that somebody's will will go, okay, I accept. All right. Now, I was probably a little aggressive last week, downplaying that as significant. Uh, 
And that's what, so I want to revisit this and I want to talk a little bit. I still think, I still think we've screwed it up. I think we, we've taken away the glory of God from the work of redemption and we've parceled it out among ourselves and our own choices. But our will is a factor and it's very important. So, yes, man's will is involved. What is the role of man's will in God's plan for eternal life? What is the role of man's will? Okay, well, let's see if we can figure it out. So I went to a scripture that I thought we could all glean from because it's about Jesus, and it's an example of wills, both God's and and God's. But also, man's in the person of Jesus. So it says here in Luke, you know the story. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus had just got his disciples and said, pray. And then he walks a stone throw away. And he says, he knelt down and he began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Okay? And so there's a couple of words. The the concept of will is not quite as complicated as the concept of accept and receive was. So one of the words that is used frequently in Scripture about will is the Greek word belomai. And it means uh, it means to will or to be willing. And so I kind of coordinated the green and the green. And so that word where it says, Father, if you are willing, this is Jesus praying that to his Father, if you are willing, uh, is the word belomai, belomai. And it means to will or uh, reflexively means when you're talking about yourself, to be willing. So Jesus was, was asking his Father, be willing. It's translated as in the King James, be disposed, be minded, intend, or willing. Okay. Now there's another word, 2309, which we're going to compare it to, and that's the other will where Jesus says, not my will. Okay. And that word is fellow, but the, uh, the word that Jesus is speaking there is thelema. They're both of the same, same family. It has a, a tense difference. This one means a determination. Okay. A determination. Something that you, in your head, and you make a determination, and in your heart. Uh, an active choice or a volitional inclination. So this word is used for a one-time act of will, but it's also used for a turning of your heart toward something as an act of will. Does that make sense? Uh, it's translated as desire, pleasure, and will. And there's a lot of this in the Scripture. Uh, the will of God almost always uses when it, when it talks about you know somebody knowing the will of God or following the will of God or hearing you know understanding it's almost always thelema, and when it's uh, on a personal level where somebody's saying like Jesus there my will or I will um, that's usually the uh, the other version of the phalo version so desire pleasure will it's a place it's the, it's the word that's used um, in Second Peter, where uh, when talking about judgment and last times and uh, a thousand years like a day, and it's like a thousand years. God's not willing that any should perish. It's the it's this word. The, so anyway, we're going to look at this a little bit more now. Here's just a dictionary definition of will, and this is not at all complicated. What you guys think the will is is probably what the will is. It's not a super complicated concept. The first definition is a faculty by which a person decides on and initiates action. Make sense? So we're talking about that mental capacity, and I think it's safe to say the heartfelt capacity as well, 
that you sort of put yourself in a position to decide to do something or decide to act or decide whatever. The second one is control deliberately exerted to do something or to restrain your own impulses. So it can be both positive and negative, affirmative and restraining. Make sense? It's not, again, I don't think it's super complicated. Uh, and, and we call that like an effort of the will. Okay. The last one is a deliberate or fixed desire or intention. And that is where, uh, where the will is something that is established or there's something that you use the first faculty to uh, make a choice to change. And, and I, I think this is going to come into play a little bit. Now, I think the one that has a lot to do with what we're going to be talking about is the second one, uh, deliberately exerting control to do something or to restrain one's own impulses. So that's kind of what I'm talking about when I talk about will. All right, so when we're talking will, we're talking about using the limited control of our choice. Now, why do I say limited control? Uh, anybody that has tried to diet when you weren't really in 100% self-agreement realize that your choices are limited. Your will is limited, right? And, and so our will is not absolute. It suffers from being finite just like we do. Okay, uh, but, it, but it is using the limited control of our choice to respond to God. And then this part is the one I really want us to think about because it's the part that I was kind of fearing we're missing with a weak view of accepting. And it's, to, it's not just to, uh, to respond to God, but to respond to God and to join ourselves to him. And not just to join ourselves to him as if it were some... Uh, and I, I totally believe in this, but some mystical union where uh, he's in us and we're in him, like Jesus said in John 14. It's to join ourselves with his intent, with his thoughts, with his vision of us and his vision of the world around us and his vision of other people. So there's a joining aspect. And it's, it's the part that I think separates uh, relational Christianity, if that means something to you, from transactional Christianity. And I don't know if transactional Christianity is an appropriate term. It's something I've used for quite a while. But what I mean by that is that my thing with God, however you want to describe it, is, is based upon and measured by me doing the right transaction and respond to his transaction for me. So he sends Jesus, and I believe in Jesus. But I don't join with him in that. And what I've learned in, in the last few years is that it's the joining, it's the participation in the invitation into relationship that radically changes things. And it's the absence of that participation in relationship or the absence of the consciousness of that relationship that causes us problems. Because then... We're constantly um, working to try to see what we think about our uh, standing. We're measuring it against on our performance or against how, how we feel or how we feel that God feels. But there's just not a sense of stability. There's not a sense of that kind of thing. And so uh, if you just permit me that, that's what I mean here by join ourselves to him and his revealed desire and will. And then the desire and will is important to me too, because 
Um, I think there's been a preoccupation with God's will in, in the Western church as if it were also a list of things instead of a depth of relationship, instead of an intimate knowing. And so that's why I like the idea of desire in there. And desire is one of those words that you remember we looked at that this idea of will talks about. Uh, another place that that uh, that word desire comes out in a lot of translations is in First uh, Timothy chapter two, where it says that uh, God desires that all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Now I don't know how that's going to happen. I don't know uh, what the mechanics are that that could even lead to that, because there's will involved in people and all kinds of things. But I know that God's heart wants that, and so there's something to be gained by me being united in my heart with His heart. There's something to be gained. And, uh, you know, there's other uh, instances where God's will is talked about that, uh, you know, this is the will of God in you. And then there's a phrase there. Well, do we agree with that first rather than seeing it as just a list or a criteria that we want to try to match up to? And I think, I think that's, that's it. Um, all right. So I, I wanted to come up with just a couple of little scriptures. Yeah, we're going to have plenty of time to talk this through. Uh, here's one, John 5. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, this is Jesus speaking, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So this is an example of of the interchange between Jesus' will and the Father's will. And there's no doubt in my mind that this is a part of what's being asked of us in regard to our will in the invitation of the gospel, is to not just... uh, not just do an act of our will that puts us in a position to be counted as somebody who's accepted Jesus. And that was one of the things that I wanted to talk just a tiny bit about before we move on, is uh, I guess one of the things I fear, if we don't think about this will issue the way the Scripture reveals it, is, is that we have the possibility of offering a token of our will to the Lord in response to the invitation to the gospel, a token of our will to get saved. And I'm not saying that, that there's not lots and lots of people that have been born again and, and, and drawn into relationship with the Lord when somebody preaches the gospel to them and they, they, they have an act of their will. But I'm calling it a token not to be like super pejorative, but, but to mean that it's just something, it's like a tithe, a tithe of our money is not the same thing as inviting the Lord into our finance. And a token offering of our will to agree with a thing that he did, to, to receive that thing, believe that thing, that's not the same thing as our whole will being yielded to him. And what I think Jesus demonstrates here is the way to live in union with the Father is going to lead to your will being surrendered to His will. And not just surrendered as if your will doesn't matter. Joined so your will can be transformed to be His will. And so I think it's a, a stronger... So the idea, uh, Jen, the question that came out in, in our conversation afterwards is, do I think the will has a part? I remember I tried to say something. I think it's bigger than we think. And, and this is what I mean by that. Is that... You and I really, even though we're finite, 
And even though our life is, is, is uh, in our perception of life and our life and others' lives, it's shaped around events that could distort how we see things. The fact that we're not just being asked to accept God's will, but to join with God's will, gives us an opportunity to see people in the world and ourselves differently. And that's what I think is so profound about this invitation into Christ. And uh, I've got a guy that I respect a lot, uh, Baxter Kruger. When people ask him to sum the gospel up, he says, uh, among a number of things, he says, the good news is not that you can accept Jesus into your life, but that he has accepted you into his. And he's asking you in that position of acceptance in him to stand up and lift your vision and change the way you see the Father to match the way Jesus sees the Father. And to change the way you see your neighbor, the way Jesus sees your neighbor, and most importantly, not most importantly, but critically important, is to lift your vision and see yourself the way Jesus sees you. That's the gift, I think, of the incarnation. That is what Jesus brought here. He brought his knowledge of the Father. And then in John 12, when when uh, talking to those there and kind of preparing the disciples for that last run, he said, if some man be lifted up, he will draw all to himself. And then Paul goes on and emphasizes in the gospel that we are in Christ. We are united with him in his death, and we are likewise united with him in his resurrection. That means, that means more than some positional or provisional impartation to us. That means that we are made alive with Christ, in Christ. And we can see and experience life in a way that we cannot when we are by ourselves, and we cannot when we're not accepting this invitation into Jesus. So that was that one. Uh, Here's a, a, a statement in Psalms that I think is just amazing. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. I don't think anybody here would disagree with this, but I don't know how often I even think about the fact that one of the roles of the Spirit is not just to impart things to me, but it is to literally draw me into understanding how God sees the world. Draw me into the will of the Father. Draw me into the way He, he sees people. And, and I, it's, a, it's kind of a, a stunning thought when you think about that. Uh, Jesus said in John chapter 16, uh, talking about the Holy Spirit, that uh, he's going to take what the Father has given to me, he says of himself, take what the Father's given to me, he's going to declare it over you. So envision this, the Father gives Jesus A, and the Holy Spirit has the ministry to speak over your life A. And then the Father gives Jesus B, and the Holy Spirit carries the ministry to speak be into your life or over your life by way of declaration. And when God declares things, things happen, right? Let there be. Go and sin no more. Those kind of things. Uh, rise and walk. You know? So this is, a, this is a part of this exchange of will, this transfer of will, this union with will, I think, that we, that we, are, we are a part of. And, uh, and then the thought that this is what he's doing for us. So how is it when the, when the scripture says, when Paul says there in Romans, 
uh, that he was led by the Spirit. These are the sons of God. And because you're sons, the Spirit cries out in your heart, Abba, Father. Do you see how that is a transfer of, of the life of Jesus with his Father? Because Jesus says, Abba, Father. And now that's in us, not just as a provisional uh, token, but a real, honest to God, cut it loose and know your Father. Know that you're a child. Know that he loves you. Know what his attitude is toward you and what his vision is for you. So I think this idea of, of being taught and lead me on level ground is kind of cool. And then the last one doesn't actually say a thing about the will, but I thought it was a great example of will. And this is in when um, the angel is speaking to Mary, and it's Mary's response uh, when he's telling her that she's going to have a child and so on and so forth. Uh, and Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Do you, see, do you see the will in here, though? Do you see the joining of the will, the alignment of the will, the surrender of the will? And it, it, and it obviously was an ongoing thing, right? Because she carried Jesus that whole way. And then, uh, uh, of course, there was a birth, and there was all that went on in that. And then there was, uh, you know, you're going to have a thousand pangs shot through your heart kind of thing. And then later, have you guys been watching The, the Chosen? You know, so Mary's relationship with Jesus, I think, is beautifully depicted in there as an adult mom going in. Uh, but this all this is where it started, with her saying, let it be done to me as you are revealing, as you are speaking. And that's the idea of will. So, so when God says something in the gospel, and I'm not even just saying the gospel that is focused when we're getting saved or somebody's trying to get saved. I'm talking the good news that is the gospel story, that, that the incarnation came to reveal the Father and us. Remember that Paul says that we behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord from glory to glory. So that's how we learn about who we are too. That's part of the gospel. It's not just a salvation from sin. It's about that reflection. Uh, I don't know who I am. When, when Jesus is revealed, I'm going to be like him because I'm going to see him as he is. And I don't think that's just an end-time revelation. I think that's the revelation that is continuing to dawn in our hearts when we see him. So the will is a huge deal in all this kind of stuff. So just reflect back on that little line there that I tried to craft. It, it's, it's using the limited control of our choice to respond to God and to join ourselves to him. And it's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing because he continues to reveal it. And again, this childness thing that we're focused on around here makes that make a lot more sense to me because a child is built to grow. They're not built to be complete in, in the first version that you get of them, <laughs> right? You have a baby and are they complete in that sense? Are they a whole person? Do you love them all you'll ever love? Yes but they're built to take on more and more and more. And that's the way we are. And that's what this is about. It's the sharing, not just the surrender of our will, not just a token giving of our will when the Lord asks of us to do something or give something or say something. It's literally the sharing of our will. And sharing is this intertwining, this interweaving. 
So it's really, really critical. And I guess if I did have a, a, a critique of my own understanding of it in the past relative to the gospel, is that the gospel was all focused around this point where either I was being asked or I was asking somebody to surrender their will. But I was really only asking them to surrender their will on the one point of believing in Jesus and I'm a sinner and this, that, and the other. I think that that, I think there's too many people that walk away from that. Or there's too many people that develop a ministry around that moment that miss out on the fact that this is a, a, an ongoing surrender, an ongoing sharing, an ongoing receiving of the knowledge of the Lord. Because he can't, I mean, he's coming from an infinite place of reference points that are way beyond us. He can't share it all at one time. Jesus said that to his disciples when he said, there's a lot that I want to tell you, but you can't carry it right now. We're in that process, just like our children are. We're in that process. Now, this I think is a pretty, it's a pretty cool, cool uh, verse. So we're not on our own in this. And this is why I, I feel comfortable encouraging us to embrace a bigger vision of our participation in, sharing in, and, and union with God's will. Because we're not on our own. If it was the case that God is just out there in the distance somewhere having his will, we could acknowledge that obviously, Lord, you're, you're the God of the universe. Your will is right, you know, and I think we would all agree with that. But that doesn't get that will to us. And then we could acknowledge, well, Jesus said, I came to do your will. And so the incarnation in his life is what brings God's will to us. Yes, it does, but I don't think that's it, only. And I think we would be hard-pressed. We'd all have to just study Christology all our life and, and hope for the best, you know, on, on whatever our cognitive abilities are in it. Let me read this. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Think about that. When we cast our will and the surrender of it or the token offering of it or the agreement that, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm going to agree and I'm going to surrender here and accept you or whatever, when we let it get that small and we feel like this is us offering this thing to God, we lose sight entirely that it is God himself in you and me who is working both for us to will and to work. To will and to work. What is there that he could ask of us that we cannot surrender or give if he's willing to be in us working that out. I don't know if, if, if it feels that way to you, but this seems like unbelievably significant to me. Unbelievably. The God who made me is also working to shape me through the yielding of my will and the union of my will with him. Therefore, my temptation, and I face them like I'm sure you do, my temptation to fret over my own development and my own growth 
Because there's evidence in my life that I'm not. And there's voices that say I'm not. They come sometimes out of my own heart, my own head. And they come from other people sometimes, or judgments or comparisons. But what what power do those have to stand up to the fact that my father, who conceived of me in his heart before I was ever made, for sure. I'm not a, a big one on pre-existence of the soul. I, I don't feel like I got to go there. Um, I'm not, you know, totally. I don't know. I don't understand enough about it. What I do believe, what I do believe, is a surety, is that God conceived of me as His child and you as His child before we were made and before the things in this world were made, because the world was created to house His children. And so whatever degree of specificity that vision carried in the heart of the Father, He was your Father before He was your Creator. He was my Father before He was my Creator. And all the splendor and the glory of the heavens and the earth were made so that you and I could be in Him, live in Him, enjoy them, and grow up in Him. And so if He has that kind of vision, and if that vision is what my destiny is built on, not, not the uh, projected growth and progress of my life, but if it was the, the created value that God saw me with, if that's what my destiny is projected on, and if He is willing to not only work on behalf of me doing stuff, but willing to do it, how can we lose? How can we lose? Isn't there room for faith in that? I think there is. And isn't there room to even let the significance of our will in this whole thing get big enough to be scary? Get big enough. So there's a lot hanging on this will. Yeah. But God is working in me to will. I'm not just left to a New Year's resolution or a diet resolution or an exercise resolution. He's working in me. And what is He working in me to do with my will? He's working in me to share His with mine and mine with Him. And I don't think it's just a a list of predetermined things we're supposed to do. I think it has to do with the development of our character, the development of our vision, the development of our worship the development of how we see ourselves and our Father and how we see our neighbors and even our enemies. And I, 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 For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work. That's an incredible, optimistic reality. Is He working in me when I don't particularly respond? Yes, I think so. Is he working in me when I'm doing my best? Yeah, I think so. Is he working in me when I kick the dirt and I aw shucks and I divert my gaze? I think so. I think so. That's why I think those things don't always get the best of us. Because if it was just us on our own, it'd be difficult to pull out of those things. But because God is working in us, both to change our will in that matter.
I think that's incredible. So what is the role of man's will and God's plan for eternal life? It's the, it's the function that we be joined with him. That we begin to step into the created destiny that we have. That we begin to rise up and live like sons and daughters of God. And then all the incredible things in Scripture where Paul says, don't you know you're going to judge angels and creation's waiting for the revelation of the glory of God? It all begins to make some sense because God is working in our will to join with him in that. The next one is, when do you think God stops working to will and work in us for his pleasure? Now, there's two ways to think about that and answer it that I would like to leave us with tonight. One of them is when we're just dull to the fact, we feel like we're on our own. But if there's anything you can remember out of what we're talking about tonight, uh, I would suggest that it um, that this is an important one, that he's working. Even when things are going goofy, even when things are going astray. And then, if God can continue to do so, is there any possible reason he would not? So I just want to leave those, those three with you. Our role is, to, is uh, the role of our will. It's, it's the function that allows the inner part of us, the thinking part, the emotional part, the heart part, the spirit part, to join literally with the heart and purposes of God. And if, if, if you just woke up one morning and you just said, you know what? The objective and subjective reality of my life is that I am in union with God and he is in union with me. I'm telling you what, you're set up for a good day that day. Because what is there that can overcome that? And then the second is, when do you think God stops working? There's no, there's no indication. I can find no indication that he does. And we can talk about that more later in specific application, probably will. And the last one is, is if God can do it, wouldn't love provoke him to do it to you tomorrow? I think so. Make sense? 